Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome. You have landed in the world of rated LGBT radio, and we are very glad to have you here. Welcome to this week's podcast. Um, Today, we are tackling a pretty serious, um, not pretty, very serious topic, um, and a unique look into a world that often gets glossed over. Um, We're talking about the sex trade industry or um, underground or whatever um, definition you want to put around that, um, that substructure. Um, But we're focusing in on the boy victims uh, of that industry. Oftentimes we hear conversations, and rightly so, about girls who have been um, sucked up into that. Um, But a team of investigative reporters out of Boston with um, GBH, (laughs) I've got gay on the mind, GBH, um, and it is an investigative news house, um, did a two-part series called Unseen, The Boy Victims of the Sex Trade. And um, we are very blessed today to have uh, one of the two reporters um, is our special guest, uh, Jennifer McKim. Uh, Jennifer is uh, a long-term investigative reporter. She's a senior reporter there at GBH News. She has focused on social justice issues, including criminal justice, child welfare, sex trafficking, uh, personal debt. She has um, earned numerous awards, including the National Edward R. Murrow Award, a Casey Medal for um, Meritorious Journalism, and the Freedom of Information Award from the New England First Amendment Coalition. Um, She was also a finalist for the 2005 Pulitzer Prize in Public Service. Um, She, as I've mentioned, one of the areas she has dug into thoroughly, uh, sex trafficking, and um, so she, she and a partner took a very unique look at the underreported boy sex trafficking, which makes up about 30% of um, that that total group. Um, So it is sizable. It isn't looked at. And we're going to talk to her about the factors that make it somewhat invisible, um, the factors that have brought it about into existence at all, and um, hopefully some insight as to um, what can be done about it and, and what we can do to affect it. Um, before we bring Jennifer on, I do want to welcome to the show my esteemed colleague, also an esteemed journalist, um, Brody Levesque. Brody, welcome to the show. Now, I don't quite feel like an esteemed journalist after listening to that uh, recitation of awards. I think I will just Yeah, I'm telling you, you've been sitting on your laurels there. Get to work. Get to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, well, what I, the hell have you been I, doing? Uh, yeah, well, reporting on White Houses. You don't get Pulitzers for that. Um, yeah. So 
this has been kind of a of a situation for our listeners that may or may not be aware of it uh, on the ground. Uh, California uh, has a unique situation where we're about to recall yet another sitting governor. And uh, as part of that recall, uh, there is usually a group of folks that declare their immediate candidacy uh, to replace whoever the voters are, you know, going to recall. In this case, Governor Gavin Newsom. Right. Uh, most of this brought about, of course, because of folks' unhappiness in certain quarters of the state uh, with what they perceived as um, the governor's lack uh, in uh, taking care of business in the work. Well, one of the uh, folks who threw uh, her hat in the ring last week is reality television star uh, Caitlyn Jenner, who is a bit of a lightning rod of criticism in the LGBTQI community uh, to start with. She's extremely controversial. And last night uh, she went on Fox News, uh, Sean Hannity's program, as a matter of fact, and in the commentary I wrote late last night for the Los Angeles Blade, I pointed out that rich privilege was on full display and it wasn't pretty. Uh, it really wasn't pretty. Uh, and, Jenner, and Brody, when, yeah. when, when you say that, what, what, what exactly was, what were her statements that exuded rich privilege? Well, I was actually, if you'd given me a couple seconds, I was going to get right into the heart of it, starting with the very first one. So here we go. Okay. Speaking, we go. speaking to Hannity, quote, my friends are leaving California. My hanger, the guy right across from me, he was packing up his hanger. And I said, where are you going? And he says, I'm moving to Sedona, Arizona. I can't take it anymore. I can't walk down the streets and see the homeless. Now, I should note that not every Californian has a beach craft or a small private jet parked in a hangar someplace at their disposal. Jenner, on the other hand, does. Uh, she, because of her standing as a reality store, uh, reality star. Well, that's true too. Reality star uh, has, you know, amassed a little bit of wealth uh, to go along, I guess, with the fame. But it didn't stop there. It it continued. Um, and I've got to give a hat tip and an acknowledgement to a journalistic colleague, box journalist uh, Aaron Rupar. Aaron live tweeted the entire store, uh, the the whole show, and the whole story, complete with uh, with video clips. Uh, if you're interested, uh, after um, you're done listening to our show today, uh, go to the Los Angeles Blade. My column is up, Rich Privilege on Full Display, and you can actually watch the clips. Another thing that Jenner said, which really got people going, Jenner explained that she's opposed to transgender girls playing sports against other girls. Okay, But then she turns around in the next breath and explains to Hannity that she wants to be a role model for transgender girls. Now, let me frame the context for you. Jenner is transgender herself, and she's opposed to what she referred to last weekend in a quick ambush interview by TMZ, the tabloid, uh, that she's opposed to transgender biological boys, okay, playing in girls' sports. I guess I could point out the hypocrisy here, but I'll let that go. Then she kept going. Okay. She then echoed President Trump, who she was a supporter of at one point. 
And she said forest management is extremely important, talking about the California wildfires, to which my colleague Rupar immediately went to, that sounds a little Trumpian for you. And, of course, we all experienced President Trump's rather interesting, let's rake the forests. Then it kept going. So the next part, which kind of threw everybody off, okay, was she actually took credit for Governor Newsom loosening the COVID restrictions. Now, I'm not exactly sure how she factored herself into that equation, but I can tell you as a reporter who uh, reports not only on the governor, but Dr. Galley and the Department of Health, I have conversations with the Los Angeles Department of Public Health and its director uh, virtually every week. Uh, we talked to CalHealth. I, I, I never once have I heard Jenner's name being mentioned in any of the press conferences, briefings, or conversations by phone or email that I've had with the governor's staff, health department, et cetera, but she went there. And then, of course, she talked about uh, immigration and uh, she uh, kind of responded, uh, oh, sorry, did I miss the legal part of immigration? Thank you for catching me. And, you know, that was kind of a, that brought about a grown uh, moment. And then I'm just going to do one more because it just, the whole interview goes yeah, on. Yeah, no, same, no, same, same I think box. these are important points. Yeah. Uh, then, then she hit on this one, which personally I kind of thought was kind of funny. Jenner told Hannity that she wondered why high-speed rail is needed between Los Angeles and San Francisco since people can just fly. And, yeah, and then finally she went into this long, drawn-out explanation of why she thought President Trump did a better job than President Biden, who's only been in office for 100 days, mind you. Okay, and as Rupar pointed out, it was vapid, it was specious, and then – Mercifully, it ended. But, you know, the whole problem with this, and, and I know that uh, we're going to catch flack, and I already have caught flack today, is why do we bother covering this person? Well, you know, obviously her grasp of political and civic engagement and knowledge isn't that high. But one of the things that, as the editor of one of the two, LGBTQ publications in the state of California that I need to pay attention to is the fact that she's making statements and she's taking a a stamp on the rights of these trans kids. And it's dangerous, it's harmful, and it doesn't help. And as George Takei, the actor, pointed out in a tweet that he threw out, I believe yesterday, was Caitlyn Jenner is no, you know, ally of the LGBTQ community. Uh, and that's been echoed by everybody, I would add, nor does she speak for us. Um, it's problematic. You know, right now, as you know, Rob, because we've covered it here on the show and at the Los Angeles Blade and in the rest of queer media, we've been covering this. We have 30 states that have fired off some of the most horrific, horrible pieces of legislation against the trans community and in a couple cases you know, against the LGBTQI community in general. Uh, The most recent example that I can think of wasn't even a bill or a piece of legislation. It was the fact that the state Senate of Tennessee passed a resolution 
unanimously, 30 to 0, to honor a country music star, okay, who just happened to have come out as gay a couple months ago. And when that resolution, which should have been a no-brainer, got to the House of Representatives floor, the guy that blocked it and sent it back to a committee that's already done with its business for this legislative session, effectively killing it, was none other than the sponsor of several of the really bad anti-LGBT laws that went to Governor Bill Lee of Tennessee's desk for signature. So you have to kind of look at the pattern here. And the biggest part of this, and, and, and why we have to cover stuff like this, is because Jenner is readily embracing a Republican Party that, for all intents and purposes, they've lost the plot. You know, these people right. still believe the big lie. These people think Trump is, you know, the best thing since sliced bread. It's, you know, it's part of the divisiveness and the overarching, you know, narrative of this. And as the editor, as I said of the Los Angeles Blade, uh, you know, I have a responsibility. And I'm sorry, I will continue to cover Jenner. I know that she is, you know, basically in some political circles looked at as a cocktail party joke. But I can't look at her that way because it's terribly important because we've got kids out there that are being damaged by people like her and the people right. in the party that she supports and is a part of. Well, well, you have to cover her for a couple of reasons. One, um, the, the cocktail party jokes that she's the butt of, um, many of those cocktail party jokes are transphobic. And so the reason we need to cover her is because, like it or not, like her politics or not, like her brain deadedness enough, uh, uh, or not, um, she is one of the few people that many people in this state, in this country, know who they saw transition and they know as um, transgender. Um, that's just the way it is. You know, we can't pick who people know. And people knowing transgender people is important. Um, the other thing is, yes, Jenner should have her ass handed to her for her onerous um, opinions on um, teens or transgender teens. Um, first of all, she is the worst kind of role model. She is, she's an absolute self-centered pig in terms of not thinking about the people who need to see her, need to admire her on some level and what she could be. And for her to have, um, you know, pooped all over them is, is unforgivable. I mean, that, that's, um, that doesn't mean she shouldn't be covered. It means she should be argued against. It means she should be educated. She obviously can't think beyond her own nose. She's thinking of her past life where she, as a, quoting her, born biological male, um, um, excelled at sports because she was uber talented at it. It doesn't mean that she was that way because of her hormones or her gender or anything else at the time. And it doesn't mean that she is a standard. In fact, she is an outlier of somebody who should be looked at as an example on that issue because no, nobody in either gender is that talented that that is a rare thing any anywhere that person occurs in um on the the landscape so um she's she's misspeaking um because she can't see that her own personal experience 
is not universal. Um, but again, the answer to that is educating and not hiding from the information. Um, the rest of it, you know, yeah, it's like it's it's atrocious. You know, it's it it needs it needs the light because it it's the noose around her own neck um, politically that will will um, make her her run very short because she will not be speaking to the majority of Californians. But it is important that we not undignify her run because she is transgender. That, that is irrelevant to her qualifications to be governor um, and the rest of her lack of qualifications are what's important. But it is a positive that a glass ceiling has been broken um, even if we don't happen to like the person that broke it. Um, just yeah. my two cents on that one. Um, right. Well, before we, uh, before we bring Jennifer on, I, I want to note that the work that WGBH has done in this area is impressive. It's incredible. There is a uh, contextual add-on to it, the work that Jennifer and her colleague did on this area that is severely underreported, and that's just my personal opinion, is also meshed with current events right now on the U.S.-Mexican border. Um, I'm being told uh, from uh, colleagues down there that we are running into young males from uh, Guatemala and Honduras uh, who have made allegations uh, that they were being trafficked or had been trafficked on the way up to the border or were supposed to meet that way. These are unaccompanied minors under the age of uh, majority, which is 18. Um, and so, you know, there's a direct correlation with a lot of what Jennifer and her colleague worked on. It's an area that does not get enough oxygen, does not get enough signal, and is, is very much related to an overarching, um, you know, almost a dark hole, if you will, in the issue for these kids. So I applaud WGBH and its team uh, for bringing this out and talking about it. Uh, and with that, Rob, I'll throw it to you. Yep. So, and with that, um, let's bring Jennifer on. Um, again, Jennifer is a senior investigative reporter at GBH News. Um, Jennifer, welcome to Rated LGBT Radio. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's our, our pleasure, our honor. Um, Jennifer, I want to step back from this particular story and take you to your bigger area of expertise in this area. Um, can you frame, you know, we hear the term sex trafficking. Um, can you frame exactly what that is and versus what it might be perceived to be? Sure. And, and you know, I was thinking as I was listening to you folks that um, I – um, spent 10 years working at the Orange County Register in Southern California, and um, that was the first place that I learned and wrote about the um, commercial sexual exploitation and trafficking of young people. And at the time, it was girls. Um, and I think back then in, like, in the 2000s, early 2000s, it was a really surprising and shock for me as a reporter there to realize that there were domestic U.S. girls um, working tracks, you know, at underage um, being, you know, sold as prostitutes. And at the time, they called it child prostitution. And um, they don't do that anymore because that 
sort of uh, belies some type of agency, as if uh, you could choose to be a prostitute when you're 15 years right. old. Now um, the federal law says that under the age of 18, if you're involved in the sex trade in any way, including um, being controlled by a pimp, which is um, you know, largely – what I think at that time when I was in California, it was hard to understand that this was happening at all because when people thought of sex trafficking, they thought of the Philippines or, you know, people being chained in, in other countries. And it was really hard for people in this country to realize that this was happening on our own local streets in any town in America, that there were kids being sold on the streets, often being controlled by pimps uh, who were putting them on the streets, like in what they call modern-day slavery, terrible and awful thing that was happening that people don't understand. Um, so that is sort of the, the, the story that both Philip Martin and I, who works at GBH, and he was doing similar stories uh, related to this, this under-appreciated uh, problem across America of children being sold. But we generally, then it started to, people began to understand it, and then the idea was mostly that it was girls and young women. And then um, as Philip and I, I moved to Boston, I worked at the Boston Globe, I did a project that ran in 2010 related to um, girls like I'm talking about who were controlled by pimps put on the street. Uh, Massachusetts was one of the first state, last states in the union to pass a sex trafficking law to make it easier to help victims and to prosecute predators. Um, but really, again, it was this, this, this story that we were focused on about girls and young women, and Philip and, um, started to get calls from one particular advocate who was saying, but what about the boys? And so right. basically that is sort of how we got to the point of deciding that we wanted to turn the focus onto the young men um, and boys who are being uh, sold and trafficked and exploited on the streets of America. No, and, and your piece is excellent and important. Um, and it's, it's interesting because one of the things where I come to this issue or have, have done things in the past that are related is um, LGBTQ teen homelessness and where there's a huge disproportionate number of teens or of the teens who are homeless in America, a huge disproportionate are LGBTQ because they were literally thrown out of their home um, for being gay. Um, and uh, Jose Alfaro, who's one of the subjects of your, your piece, um, that, that is his experience as well, um, that he was you know, horrifically abused and beaten and thrown out of his home when um, his, his parents found out he was gay. Uh, one of the things that I understood when in looking at the teen homelessness was that um, if those kids were not essentially rescued within a short period of time of being thrown out of their homes, that um, they would fall into prostitution they would fall into um, drug trafficking, you know, and, and other kinds of activities. Um, and I'm not clear as to, of that population, how much of those were then manipulated by traffickers versus just, you know, 
falling into that as a way to survive. Um, did you have a sense of that overlay, and is that so? A yeah, no, so I'm definitely. I'm, it's you're totally bringing up what is. I think again, when people um, talk about trafficking, you're thinking of something of someone chained to a a bed. But under federal law, anyone who exchanges sex for something of value. Uh, under the age of 18 is considered a trafficking victim. And um, there's a 2016 study that was done by the federal government talking to homeless youth in different places around the country, and a full third of homeless youth, boys and girls, said that they traded sex for shelter, food, drugs, things of value, so that the, so that in that way the, the ones under 18 are considered um, trafficked. But um, they, they call this survival sex. Is, a, is basically the language they use, and that um, a large proportion of our young people who are um, are a large portion of our young people who are trading sex are in this sort of issue related to survival sex, and apparently with boys it's even more so than girls that there are more girls who are sort of under control of a pimp, but even that is not the majority. Most of them are what you just described, which are homeless kids, and there's a disproportionate number of LGBTQ youth and a uh, black and brown youth and trans, which is really interesting that you were talking about that today. You know, a really large portion of the trans community that ends up on the street ends up selling their bodies to survive. Yeah, it's and you see that because a lot of, I mean, trans, you know, for the um, huge amount of discrimination and um, vitriol that trans people experience, there's also this sexualization um, fetishism around it as well, and. Um, you know, I would think that it would put trans youth at, at even a, a huger risk um, because of that. Um, and what they say well, also first, is that a lot of the problem with boys is while we look at girls as people we want to protect that can be victims, that often there is an actual public view on LGBTQ youth, trans youth, as if that they somehow want to be in this life and that they are not right. like that they have some agency in it. And that is one of the things that these advocates are trying to sort of speak out in that, that boys are equally exploited and victimized and should be helped. Yeah, no, it, absolutely. So um, when, when you guys put your heads together and, and saw this, you know, and, and, you know, advocates had brought this to your attention, what was your next steps in putting together um, the story that you did? Well, the first thing that happened was there is a man um, who's a Boston-based social worker. His name is Steve Procopio. He's been fighting this fight in Massachusetts for 15 years, basically saying, I know there's boys out there, and we you know, need – so he started working them. He started working with them. He started hearing their stories, um, and when um, – and, and he over, – over the years, he's, he's been sort of uh, – happy to see that studies, some research is coming out to prove what he always said. So you brought up this study that came out, another study that came out in 2016 that said that um, that a, a third, more than a third of, of 
uh, young people in the sex trade are boys. And when that came out for him, he was just like, thank God someone is finally showing some data about what I know to be true from talking to young people. So he came into our offices with one of the young people that he had met over the last year. His name is Christopher Bates. He's a 26-year-old um, young man who lives in Worcester, Massachusetts, and he uh, got brought into the life basically as a 16-year-old selling nude photos on the Internet. Um, he, he was gay. He is gay, and he felt very isolated in an area of Connecticut where he had um, he, he was seeking attention on the internet, and he basically got sort of groomed into. Eventually, he ran away and ended up working as a prostitute full time until he realized found a way to get out of the situation he was in. And now he is this amazing advocate telling his story about what happened to him, how he didn't really feel like he was a victim at the time. And now he realized that he was doing what he had to do to survive, but it, it was not the type of choices that he, that he wanted. And so yeah, we started no, it, with, so your question to that is we, I started with Chris Bates and hearing his story and then finding the studies and the data and the experts, and there's a growing number of them. There is the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. There's the Polaris Project. There is this ECPAT uh, U.S., and, and they all have reports that have been coming out saying boy victims of the sex trade and sex trafficking are vastly underreported. Um, one thing that, and we've experienced this in a lot of LGBTQ issues uh, across the board, where people from the outside looking in on that who place judgment, judge it from a limited, quote-unquote, common sense perspective. Um, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, does the difference between male sexuality and female sexuality, is that kind of an overlay on why boys are um, – under-concerned or, or the concern is less for boys because males in a sexual situation um, appear to be, they need to be a, a, an interested participant um, to be really part of it where girls can, can be much more victimized um, that way. Is that, is that part of this? Well, I think that there is, uh, I've heard over and over that often boys don't even understand that they've been victimized or that this is something that has been, like that they think in a way that, that you know, that, and then, but then I think later on, the ones who have been able to, and that they're ashamed of it because we live right. in this patriarchal society where you can't say that you're a victim if you're a young man or that you were abused or let's say, I mean, there's apparently there's, there's there's a, a, a considerable problem within um, exploitation in the industry with gangs. And for young people to say, well, I was exploited, is so shameful that they don't tell their stories. And um, and also, especially because it doesn't – they don't have to be gay. It's not about that. It's about power and abuse. And so that people are afraid of telling these stories because then they're either they're, – they think no one's going to listen to them because they're gay, or if they're not gay, they're afraid they're going to be further stigmatized. Right, exactly. Um, Let me jump in with a quick your, question, though. Oh, God. Just because you two just sure, hit buddy. on something that um, – well, you both just hit on something, and, and Jennifer, let me ask you this. One of the things that I have uh, discovered in my reporting and in the conversations I've had 
particularly with the LGBTQ youth uh, that are homeless, um, is that in some cases with the boys in particular, there's a stigma attached to, you know, money changing hands or for goods and services. I hate using that because it just sounds so, I don't know, it just bothers me to say it, but it's for, for relative purposes, that's what it is. That it's almost as if they blame themselves. It's like, well, nobody's going to help me and nobody's going to listen to me because I took money for this. Did you or your partner, reporting partner, run into that as you were conducting these interviews? Well, definitely. So we spoke to two boys, um, young men, who both have now um, come out as survivors and advocates. And both of them said that when I was in the when I was in in it, I I didn't, you know, I felt like I like. So Jose Alfaro, let me just tell you briefly about his story. He lived in Texas. He was. Kicked, just as you said, he was kicked out of his family home at the age of 16 because he was gay, and his parents said, um, you either have to go to conversion therapy or you can't live here. And so he left and had nowhere to go, and he found someone on the Internet on some, uh, like, uh, website for for gay men and um, basically started talking to someone who was twice his age who said come on come to my house I'll take care of you and then when he went there thinking he finally had some safety or somebody who could protect him the guy put him um, got him to start selling uh, massages that were sexual massages to clients and basically he wasn't chained he was you know but he so he felt guilty that he at 16 was doing this but he realizes now he had no choice he was afraid he was homeless he had nowhere to go so he got involved in this thing and yet he felt he felt that he was as guilty as this adult male who put him in this situation and later on this man was found in um, trying to go to London with a 16 year old or a 15-year-old boy to, uh, to traffic him in London. He got arrested, brought back to the U.S., and, and Jose Alfaro heard about this case and, went and testified. But when he first heard about this guy getting arrested, he thought that he would get in trouble because at 16 he had worked with him, not thinking that he was a minor and a victim. Mm-hmm. And his whole brain had to sort of change to realize that he had been exploited. Yeah, it, it, it was interesting, um, um, Jose's story. Um, uh, there, I heard a lot of parallels to a lot of the experiences that girls had under the Jeffrey Epstein um, case um, because they were both set up in that came, same kind of way that they were coming in to just do massage, and then all of a sudden the massage thing was something other, um, and they – literally were not at a point where they had actually consented that that was, was even what they were going to do, even though even if they had, it still would have been, um, you know, to your point, trafficking and, and illegal. Um, the family who they came for, though, they came from, um, they did not just politely give him a choice. They beat him um, before throwing him out of the house or essentially – um, trying to force them into that therapy. Um, and uh, I know your uh, partner reporter, Philip Martin, has talked about toxic masculinity, um, which you know, pervades those families, pervades society. Um, can you speak to that, that issue um, for America um, and how that plays into this? 
I, um, I'm probably not the, I, I probably would like to hear from you a little bit more about the whole idea of toxic masculinity, but my, my understanding is that this is just, again, something where people like Jose could not admit, admit to being victimized. And so he went out, he did these things, and then he eventually ran away from this person's house, and then he had nowhere to go. So he ended up doing what we just discussed, which is called survival sex, selling his body to survive and feeling more and more like he was at fault for everything he did and not being able to say that he was exploited. Um, and and I, the whole blame thing is so interesting because, as, as you know, I mean, sexual assault victims always blame themselves, whether they got drunk or et cetera, and that this idea, um, they're saying that, within the boy in the male community that that they they need a, a me too movement it hasn't happened in the same way that we've had over the last couple of years with females right and and to address the the toxic masculinity um thing was um a few weeks ago we had um the he was formerly known as the porn star um uh Sean Mayo on uh the show and he came from a very similar background where he came from horrible, horrible abuse. He was abused by priests in a, um, a, a home he was sent to um, as a teen um, and sexually abused. And then he uh, turned to escorting and then finally into porn. Um, and his journey was kind of marked with the, the polar ends of the experience in starting with a heterosexual um, father figure who literally, and, and this is the case of Jose as well, where their answer to, to what they didn't approve of and, and in some circles even possibly be seeing as quote-unquote tough love was to physically beat the crap out of their sons. And those boys taken from that to an environment where somebody is predatory and sexual, but in that environment is treating them warmly and sensually and all that, the, the, the juxtaposition makes the second case of abuse seem loving and seem welcoming and seem like the answer. Um, and I guess what I'm asking about is, you know, apart from the people who are doing these horrible things in each case, is there something spiritually and, and deeper that, that we as Americans and humans need to be addressing in terms of our society? I think um, Jose and um, Chris Bates speak very eloquently about vulnerabilities um, to what makes someone be trafficked or exploited and for Chris and Jose they talk about um, feeling isolated and um, because they're gay and homeless and having no place um, and, and for Jose also talking about being a Latino youth and how he felt like the, the people who victimized him saw him as someone that they could exploit because of those vulnerabilities. Yeah, it's um, – And, and, and ahead, I sorry. also just – I mean, about – I've spoken to a lot of women um, 
victims also of the sex trade who have been controlled by pimps. And and there is that thing of trying, you know, when you when your home life is terrible and you were sexually assaulted at the age of five and all the things that happen that or you know you're in DCF and then someone comes to try to help you 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 lean into that even when it turns out that's not what they do and that's what happened with Jose with the the, the, the first man who uh, exploited him. Right. Right. Um, one thing, I don't know that this was part of the piece that I, I've heard um, uh, a piece where you spoke on this. Um, how how are what is happening? Legis- uh, not legislatively, more of uh, um, justice wise in terms of our legal system, capturing these people who are the traffickers and I mean, versus the ones who are doing it with boys versus the ones that are doing it with girls. Well, what we found really interesting in Massachusetts is um, our attorney general's office over the last decade has been really, I mean, ever since they passed that sex trafficking law um, about 10 years ago is they have been working to prosecute cases, but they told us that of all of the more than 60 cases, sex trafficking cases that they have um, uh, brought brought in only one there was only one male victim and um, attorney general Maura Healy said basically we acknowledge we need we need to do more to find victims and to prosecute their predators these cases are really hard to prosecute because so many victims just as you said they, they they're hard uh, they, for all the different reasons, they often don't want to, they're afraid, they're, they have their own issues, they don't want to get involved in these cases. But, and so cases across the board are hard to prosecute, but the ones with boy victims are almost non-existent in, in, in these cases. Um, Brody? Oh, I'm not sure if we have Brody uh, on. No, I... I, yeah, we, you do. I, I do the polite, I hit the mute, and then I'm listening to you two, and then I'm, like, trying to unmute the thing, and it's not cooperative. <laughs> My apologies. <laughs> yeah. I usually, I, I usually steamroll these shows, and I have to remember that Brody is, is there as well and usually has great questions. So, Brody, go ahead. <laughs> Jennifer, what was probably the most difficult aspect of reporting the story uh, you know, for you and, and for your colleague. Now, this is with the understanding, and I say this as a, as a print editor. Obviously, you guys are in the medium of broadcast journalism. But, uh, you know, I, I've watched you guys, and that's the colloquial you guys meaning broadcast journalists. Uh, it, it just it seems like it's a little tough, especially once you get into the edit part, because there's like parts of the story that you really want to tell, but you just can't, or there's just not enough time to do it in that's allotted. So what were some of the difficulties you had in comprising these two uh, these two reports? So um, I'm a traditional print reporter and and who has just over the last couple of years learned radio and so and I love it. I'm, it's so fun for me to be able to hear people's voices. But we did in these two pieces write um, some pretty lengthy web stories um, so I it's great to be able to put all the details and the studies and all the and but to hear the voices of people is so wonderful in the radio pieces mm-hmm. that we did that that ran on the radio um, so and, and just so you know this it's an ongoing project so these are our first two pieces we're already working on other pieces um, and 
I mean, so the challenges of this project is finding voices. I mean, luckily we met Chris Bates first, and he was talking to us, and then we met Jose, and now we're still hoping to get more voices because I think anybody can hear a study, but it's hearing these really compelling voices of sort of young men who found their voice that is is the most important thing. And and I'll just say the, the challenging, I mean, the hard part is just hearing how these young people have lived. And actually now I'm working on a piece on how technology fuels this industry. And um, Mm -hmm. it's just very disturbing. It's really hard stuff to listen to. Well, now my understanding in talking to some of my colleagues uh, in the tech area, tech reporting, is especially on social media uh, with things like TikTok uh, in particular, they point at TikTok, but Snapchat – they point fingers at Snapchat to a lesser degree, Instagram and Facebook, because both of those platforms uh, have rather stringent guidelines uh, in terms of what's acceptable and what's not, although TikTok claims that they do. Um, it's, it's almost as if that technology, along with these dating apps, uh, mobile apps and things like that, seem to be further driving this, making it not only difficult for us as journalists to report on this, but also law enforcement uh, to do their job. How much of that have you found as you're starting into this? Well, it's just just terrible. And um, so I've been looking at Grinder, which uh, which is a gay uh, website, and a lot of young boys will uh, go on 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 the website and put ads for things like sex for pizza or will work for. And so, I mean, I'm just there, there's a lot of these sites and. Um, there's also a lot of predators who are going into the the sort of the the, the young boys um, you know internet game, gaming type things to seek out people and it's mm-hmm. it's I did a story a decade ago for the Boston Globe about the dark net and all the ugly things that are happening with predators and porn and it's just so much worse now than it was ten years ago when I wrote that story so. Um, that uh, that is mind-boggling for me. Well, what has the impact been of the, this piece and um, you focusing the spotlight on um, boy victims? Um, is it what you expected? Is it um, are you getting a lot of attention uh, from it? Well, we love. Um, I, I the the title of the story is called unseen the boy victims of the sex trade and along with the stories are these photos and these voices of these young men who are becoming seen and visible and it's been sort of extraordinary to just watch them you know have their stories being told and being empowered by it and it's definitely um been received very well by advocates and Nick Kristoff who's a you know hotshot New York Times columnist retweeted it and so there and you know just having you to listen to us it's it's really for I mean that's what we do as journalists is we're hoping people will will hear these stories and then hopefully things will happen um, when I did that story about sex trafficking in, in Boston a while ago a year later they passed the first sex trafficking law in Massachusetts and I was told that that first story helped prompt it because this young woman was brave enough to tell her story. So um, that's that's why we do these things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what you had mentioned that this is the beginning of, of uh, upcoming projects. Where where are you planning on going with this? What what do you see 
this developing into for you personally? Um, in terms of the next parts of our series? Uh, parts of your series and beyond. Um, well, so for us, I mean, again, this is a project that we're calling it like an ongoing series for the year. So, again, I'm looking at um, the issues of technology. Philip is looking at the issues related to trans youth in particular because it's such an extraordinary, vulnerable group of uh of people um, in, in this area. So basically at this point we're um, just plowing through all the material we have um, to make it sort of a coherent series at, at the end. So we have two pieces hopefully. And, and, you know, there's, we have, the other thing that's very, um, that I love about my job is that uh, I start these projects. I'm also faculty at Boston University and I teach an investigative journalism clinic. And so basically I start these projects with a group of students. So we started this project actually in the fall with 15 um, um, upperclassmen and graduate students who all sort of looked into this topic and then they filed their papers and then Philip and I started to produce. Um, so there's just a lot of material we have and we're just hoping to make sure that we can make it as rich as possible. No, it's, it, it is fascinating and thank you for doing it. It's super important. important. Um, are, you, are you looking beyond Massachusetts um, especially in what governments across the country um, are doing or might do around this, or is this, or are you staying focused um, on the East Coast? No, we're actually looking nationally and internationally. I mean, this is a very timely issue. Actually, there's a group called ECPAT International that was created to to fight um, sex tourism in, in Thailand, and they have actually started a boys' initiative around the world to look at the problem of boy victims and how too often they're not seen and not heard. And they just came out with their first piece, including a study in Bangkok related to boy victims who often don't tell their stories and are not seen as victims. And so they're starting this sort of worldwide campaign to have people focus on this. Um, in the United States, there are different groups around the I – mean, there's just so – there's not enough services for anybody, for, the, for boys or girls, but the services particularly for boys – are so limited, and um, they created just in the last couple of years the first safe home for minors in Florida, which is one home. Um, I think it's just five bedrooms and five baths, so that, um, if I remember correctly, and this month there is a similar safe home for young men up to the age of, in their 20s, in Texas. So there, it is sort of, it was when we started asking these questions, it was really interesting to see that there are people around the world thinking about this right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it comes from a lot of different angles because it's, uh, and like I said at the beginning of the show, we see a lot from the core of it when kids get beaten and thrown out of homes. So I think the, the home in Florida actually came out of one of those cases. Um, where um, a young man's story went viral, and I think that helped fund that. I believe that that's the same um, situation. But yeah, these, these this is not gone away, and and so super super important. Where can somebody watch the uh, first two um, installments that you've done? 
Well, thank you. Um, so they can go to WGBH.org and, um, or Google WGBH Unseen and Boys, and they could find it pretty easily. We have the two written pieces as well as our um, radio pieces and some really great uh, video that some of our team have put together of Jose and Chris's story. And um, if if the two gentlemen that you profiled in the pieces uh, were here, um, what what points would they want us to have brought out that we haven't talked about already? Well, when I when I talk to them, I think so much what they want is people to know that there are more people like them out there that. Boys are victimized and exploited and need help and they need to be seen and that we as a community should not be looking away. Like both of them talked about being teenagers and I don't know about you, but I have a 17 year old son and um, you know, I do my best to protect him and that there was too many people that saw these young men and didn't help them. You know, whether it was law enforcement right. who saw Chris Bates and arrested him with, a young, with an older guy and never asked him, are you okay, or teachers, et cetera. So I think if there was anything, it would be that all of us do a better job to think about kids who need help and, and try in whatever ways. And a lot of this, as you said, is about poverty and homelessness and homophobia and racism. So that's um, all of us doing a better job so that young people don't need to sell their bodies on the streets to survive. Right. Yeah, I have two 18-year-olds, and, um, yeah, they, to think, uh, you know, even if somebody's doing that to them right now at, as, as young adults is abhorrent, uh, let alone, um, you know, when they were even younger. Uh, it's it's un- unthinkable. Um, right. I, I, yeah, I, I want to thank you so, so very much for everything that you've done, and your, your work is fantastic, and um, uh, you're, you're making us aware of things that, that need public um, visibility and, and scrutiny. Um, Brody, I'm going to turn the last questions over to you. What, what more do you have? Well, uh, Jen, I just want to pass along, uh, you know, my my personal best wishes and gratitude to you and your partner and to WGBH uh, for doing this critically important story and, and your ongoing efforts to make sure that these kids and these young adults do have a voice. Um, I can't emphasize enough that, you know, we need to pay attention to these things. Uh, and I know that there is also a matter of impact, and I, and I think that that's something that as journalists we do have, but I think that it's significant uh, when we get voices uh, in our own profession that are able to convey the voices of those uh, that aren't quite so fortunate. So uh, my thanks to you, to your colleague, and, of course, to WGBH for the work that you guys are doing. Um, well, thank you, and, absolutely, and I'm sure either of them would be happy to come onto your program and talk for themselves also. <laughs> oh. well, we, well, we have no problem with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, thanks very much for your support. I, I am so grateful for the type of work I'm able to do. Um, it really, it's just every day I'm thankful that I get to, to tell these stories. Yeah, no, it's uh, 
it's important, and obviously in the past few years, uh, we've seen a lot of journalists who are doing what you do um, on, on different subjects um, come under fire and being unjustly criticized and minimized. And um, I, so, you know, we celebrate you um, in particular that, you know, uncovering these kind of, these kind of things making people aware of it. And there is such intersectionality between a lot of the issues that, that we're working against. I mean, even um, the thing that we talked about at the top of the show with transgender teens being, um, uh, you know, scapegoated and, and targeted and harmed, um, you know, all of that comes from that same bad place. Um, in in our thinking, you know, collectively, um, and this is probably the the uglier side of it, the thing that you've um, brought to the forefront. Um, and and I hope yeah, I hope absolutely. your work. Go go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just I was just thinking. We we also spoke to a man who lives in Chicago, who is now a therapist, but was a trans youth on the streets of Chicago and treated so poorly, like not like a human being by anybody, by police, by, you know, that nobody thought to help him. And he was a complete mess until someday he figured out how to pull himself out of the gutter himself, um, the proverbial gutter, and saved himself and now is actually out there trying to help other people. Right, and and thank God that he did, because so many others, it doesn't go that way. I mean, that's why the suicide rate is so high. That's why you know murders are so high um, of people who are in that situation, and they're they're not valued, and their and, and their ends, their demise is is part of that um, continuum of what what happens to them. Um, well, right, well, we and it's just there, of- there's this actually one of the story we're doing, it ran on GBH, but it's running on NPR, so maybe some of your people uh, in California will hear it in the next couple of days, sort of, uh, but this, the, the, there is this, this small but growing fraternity of young men who are telling these stories that are, you know, and it's, that's what we need. Absolutely, and thank you for bringing their voices um, to us. Um, that, again, highly, highly appreciated. And unfortunately, we are completely out of time. That is it for this week for Rated LGBT Radio. Um, Thank you for listening, and tell your friends to subscribe to our podcast. We will be back again next week with an incredible show. Um, Again, no clue what it will be. All I can do is promise you it will be worth listening to and well worth your time. For Brody and myself for this week, uh, we thank you, and we will talk to you again very, very soon. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. 
That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.